This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And today, Sam and I are continuing with the Desiring the Kingdom series, our study in First and Second Kings, looking at, uh, right now, we've been looking at the life of Elijah. Now, Sam, are we going to be talking about Elisha at all in this series, or are we going to wrap up with the with the end of Elijah? Is that it? I don't... No, we're going a good ways into Second Kings, and okay. so we'll get, we'll get a good bit of Elisha before the series is over. And we're going to meet him for the first time today. We, for the first time, Elijah encounters him. Uh, Elisha, and I promise you folks, I'm going to get those names mixed up about 37 times in the next 10 minutes because Elijah and Elisha sound a lot alike, but he is the successor to Elijah. He's going to be Elijah's protege and eventually his successor as this as this principal prophet in this story. Um, and the story of these prophets set against the backdrop of the kings. And right now, the king of Israel is still my favorite person in the whole world, King Ahab, um, which is a Hebrew word meaning spineless. Uh, no, actually, it's not. Um, but I just feel like that. <laughs> actually um, means uncle. Does it mean uncle? It means uncle. Okay. You know, it's funny, Sam, when we got started with Ahab and first encountered him, I thought that he was like, evil in a sort of crafty way like it's mm-hmm. like he was playing both ends and he was uh you know he kind of knew what was right but he decided to do what was wrong because it felt better but the more that goes on and the more we see story after story of Ahab and even what we come into today in chapter 20 is really going to bring that out in a very stark way i think Ahab just did what everybody told him to do he was utterly spineless mm-hmm. yeah his evil is through cowardice yeah. and selfishness yeah, infused together, um, and he stands alone as as the king of Israel, who is going to be the most wicked one. And what's what's wild about that is you expect the one that's the most evil that God lifts up as the most evil to be crafty, to be the one who's pushing the agenda, you know. And in reality, he kind of takes Jezebel, and Jezebel brings her gods, and he says, "Okay, let's do that." And then throughout, you know, the, <laughs> the story that we're going to be hearing today, he's kind of like, "Okay, yeah, we'll do that, or we'll do that." I mean, he's just like you said, spineless. Yeah, he's a jellyfish, and he always tends to evil. Yeah, and the you know the end of the Mount Carmel thing where uh, Elijah had killed the prophets of Baal, and he told mm-hmm. he told Ahab, "Go and eat and wait. The rain is coming now. Go home." You know, and Ahab's just like okay, and does what Elijah tells him to do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And then when he goes home, he doesn't give the full report on the situation. <laughs> he, he says he killed all the prophets. Yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he's just. He's buffoonishly cowardly. (laughs) And I think that's interesting because, as you say, you would expect that the most evil king in in Israel's history would be this completely decrepit, evil Adolf Hitler kind of person who gleefully executed, Mm -hmm. you know, thousands of his people. And instead, you got this guy who's just this spineless little wimp who keeps rolling over and showing everybody his belly. Mm -hmm. Um to use a puppy term or a cat term. And that's the thing to me that 
if there's going to be something you take away from the story of Ahab, folks, it's that what really seems to be evil in the Lord's sight is cowardice and mm. the and the the inability to stand up for what's right. Yeah. I, when you get to Revelation, that's one of the things when it's talking about those that will be outside the kingdom. One of the things that it lists, which is terrifying to me, um, is cowardice. Yeah. Like it's that is outside God. That's repulsive to God. It reminds me of that famous quote from uh, Edmund Burke, who was around. You know, he was over in Europe, but he was a statesman in Europe during the the founding of America. And one of the things that he said is a very famous quote: "Is the only thing." I'm paraphrasing. But he said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And here, so like, and that's that's really true. And so here you have Ahab, who's got all this influence of a kingdom that God has provided to him. And then cowardice, he allows everything to slink toward evil because he doesn't want confrontation. You see that, you know, when, when we're going to see story after story after story where when Ahab doesn't hear something, when Ahab hears something he doesn't like, he doesn't stand for righteousness. He doesn't say, hey, here's the way it's going to be. He just kind of slinks into this cowardly, okay, you know, I'll accept your word, um, and then just allows or even facilitates his wife to do evil in his place. And mm-hmm. he's just – and the Lord looks at that and is like, I would rather you be cunning and yeah. crafty and evil. But because, you know, it's like Revelation 3 <laughs> yeah. where it says, you know, the Lord says, I'd prefer you to be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Yeah. Wasn't that like, the church of Laodicea? Yeah. 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 It's it's this. It's this kind of like yeah. – <laughs> the Lord's like, oh, pick one. <laughs> yeah. Really. I, it's like I can deal I can deal with you being a bad guy, but being a spineless coward is like the worst thing. Um, so, but before we get into the spineless coward in chapter 20, we do have the call of Elisha here at the end of chapter 19. So this week we're picking up at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, um, where it says, So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Does that mean that he literally said, does that mean he literally threw his cloak over him? Yeah. And so, okay. so just to kind of fill backfill how we're getting to the story, remember Elijah, after he has the victory on Mount Carmel, um, he, he shows up all the prophets of Baal, God comes and delivers and burns up the offering and everybody says, yay, Yahweh is God, we'll follow him. And all the prophets of Baal are killed. And then Jezebel gives a bad word to Elijah and says, I'm still coming after you, I'm still going to kill you. And Elijah's like, I can't do this anymore, runs to Sinai. And his big complaint that he lodges to God is, I'm alone in this. Like, I'm, I, I'm not seeing revival. Nobody's really turning. The land is evil to the bone, and I can't do this anymore. Um, and God says, hey, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee, and here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to raise up Haziel, who's going to be a king of the north that's going to come and bring judgment on Israel. I'm going to raise up Jehu, who's going to bring justice upon some of the people in Israel. And then I'm going to bring up Elisha, who's going to be you know, a prophet alongside of you, a friend, an apprentice that's going to serve with you. And Elijah is like so desperate for a partner. Um, he's super excited. And that's the last instruction of the three, you know, go anoint Haziel, go anoint Jehu, and then go anoint Elisha. And Elijah's like, whatever, and beelines it for Elisha. That's the first one he goes to. And so it says when he gets there, he finds this guy and he's out plowing. And what what 
what's pictured here is Elisha is behind two oxen and he's holding this plow, steering the oxen forward. And what Elijah does is he comes over him and the prophets in, in that day wore cloaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would have hung over his shoulders, almost like a cape, we would imagine. Pretty and, big, heavy garment, in other yeah, words, right? Okay. Yeah. And so what, what's pictured here is Elijah's taking his cloak and kind of slinging it over Elisha. And it looks like here you have these two guys now yoked together under oh, okay. his mantle. And so that's a, that's a pretty cool picture because it's, you know, well, if he's yoked to Elijah, then the, the Lord is the one steering them um, from behind. And so it's this great picture. So here's Elisha who's doing industry. He's a farmer. He's, you know, commentaries say that this suggests that he had a lot of wealth. Um, the fact that there's 12 yoke of oxen here. It's a um, big enough field anyways for 12 yoke to be in it, whether, you know, right. whatever. That's a good size yeah, piece of land. if he rented it out or leased it out, whatever. Whatever it like, is. It's still a lot of land. <laughs> correct. And so he's in a good position. And what happens when Elisha, when Elijah, excuse me, throws the mantle. So you're going to do it now cloak. too. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's going to happen a lot. Yes. He throws it over his shoulders. What he's saying is, I'm calling you to a different calling. There's a different yoke on you now. Um, and you're, you're going to have to be, give all this up, basically. Yeah, you're right. under the work of a prophet now. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's just, it's an interesting recruitment technique. I wonder yeah. if it would work yeah. for us. If like, if if we need somebody to like, you know, cut bagels or set out the coffee at church, <laughs> if we could just walk up and throw our cloak over them, and they'd be like, okay, what do you need me to do? You know, it's interesting, and I, you know, you can't you can't definitively say that Elijah doesn't speak to him, but in the scriptures. Elijah never says, "Hey, come follow me." He never says, "Hey, join my labors." He just That's throws <laughs> he throws his cloak on him, and then Elijah Elisha's like, "Hey, all right, let me go kiss my mom and dad, and I'm going to follow you." He's like, "So he, if Elijah may have said something, you can't yeah. say that you know it might be in there, but the text doesn't include that. It's just this one motion." And Elisha's like, okay, I get the message. I'm in. I'll yeah. follow. Um, so, yeah. But it is interesting that he cast his cloak on him and and maybe didn't have to say anything because Elijah was famous. I mean, mm-hmm. I think Elisha knew immediately who this was. I don't think it was any like weird – you know, there, there was no surprise on Elisha's part as to who it was yeah. that was with him. For three years, this guy was the most wanted man in Israel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, I mean, the, he knows. Yeah, yeah. This is this is no stranger. So uh, it says, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, which which is another thing, interesting thing here because it's like it was like a drive by calling. Like Elijah threw his cloak over him and then kept going. <laughs> <laughs> He's running to catch up. He's yeah. running to catch up to him, you know. So I mean, Elijah obviously. I mean, there's a couple of things you could take from that. It was Elijah being, you know, like I'm I'm cool. I'm Elijah. I call you, and I'm moving on. <laughs> But it could also mean Elijah's like, "Hey, we got stuff to do, and yeah. I'm 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 doing. You know, it's time to get busy. Like, there's no time to sit around." So Elisha runs after him, and then he says, "Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you." And he, Elijah, said to him, Elisha, "This is an interesting thing because it's a it's an odd phrase as mm-hmm. translated here. Go back again. For what have I done to you? What does that mean?" I don't know. Okay. <laughs> there's there's a lot of different theories. I've been trying to figure it out. There's you know, it's like <laughs> some people say that it, you know that it's not confrontational that it's like, "Hey, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go go back, do what you need to do, but remember what I've done to you." Right. Like, so make sure you come back. Then there's another there's another 
view that says that Elijah is like, hey, uh-uh, there's no time for that. Like, get with it. You're coming with me or you're not. But I don't know that we can go that far because he allows Elisha ultimately to come to him, right? Right. Um, and Elijah's not like, nope, you had your chance. Right. But Jesus most certainly in this story um, is picking up on something. When you get to the Gospel of Luke at the very end of chapter 9, you know, this is as Jesus is calling people. And so I want to pause in your brain. We're going to leave First Kings for a minute and go to Luke chapter 9. And this is the passage. It says, so as they're going along on the road, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, you know what? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus is like, if you're going to follow me, you don't know what kind of hardship you're in for. Like I'm essentially homeless. Birds have nests. Fox has holes. There's nowhere that I lay my head. I'm all over the place. Are you sure you want in? And so he, he said to another guy, follow me. But then that guy says, first let me go and bury my father. His father had just died. And so very similar, like if I'm going to follow you, let me get things in order with my dad. And Jesus gives this statement that seems really harsh. It's one of the more difficult things that Jesus says, but it says, and Jesus said to him in verse 60, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so you're like, holy moly, holy cow. And so then another guy comes and says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow. Now that's drawing our mind to Elisha, right? He's out plowing with oxen when Elijah confronts him. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And you're like, holy cow, now that really is intense. And what he means by that, like you can imagine if you're plowing and someone calls you from behind and you turn your head to the side and you look, what's going to happen is you're going to pull the plow and you're going to make crooked rows. Right. And so what he's saying is don't look back. You got to look forward. We got to get on this. We're about the kingdom of God. But it's, you know, when it, the, the line where it says, you know, leave the dead to bury their own dead when the guy's father had died, that sounds really harsh and it's pretty intense. But to understand that, like first century burial cultures, when someone died, you wrapped them up and you put them in a tomb for a long period of time while their body decomposed and then you went back and gathered their bones and then you put them in an ossuary box and so the burial process took months mm. um, for this to happen. And so what this guy is saying is, yeah, yeah, yeah. let me get to it in, a, in months because I first got to finish the burial process for my dad. And Jesus is like, no, like let the dead bury their dead. As for you, like get on this, like stop making excuses, own this. And so I think when Jesus is calling people, this story is hearkening back to Elijah and Elisha. And what he's saying is like, yes, okay, do that, but show urgency. Don't forget what I've just said to you. Like there's some urgency here. Mm -hmm. Get with the mission. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. Okay. And I think that there – I do think that's – I mean that's kind of the side I landed on um, because we what we know is that Elisha does get to – Go back and do something first. I mean, it's like before, mm -hmm. before Elisha goes and joins up with Elijah, verse 21 says, and he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and mm -hmm. went after Elijah and assisted him. So whatever the, you know, it's like we know that Elisha was permitted to go back and do something. Mm -hmm. 
but obviously it sounds like maybe just like one big like feast and then move on. So like, don't take a long time. So yeah, we tend to like roll all these things in a really quick motion. But like when Jesus comes to let's say the fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James yeah. and John, and he says to them, "Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me." Like. It's not like they had a buyer sitting right next to them. Okay, you want to buy my boat? Like it would have taken time for them <laughs> to get right. their boat sold. It would right. have taken time for them. And that's kind of what Elisha does in this story is he's going to take his industry um, that he has worked for and he's going to use that for ministry purposes. Right. I think it's also interesting that it says he boiled their flesh, the, the oxen, and gave it to the people. Mm-hmm. And they ate. I kind of pondered that for a little bit also. Like Elisha is providing for the, the people. I'm assuming maybe the, the workers or the people mm-hmm. that were like, I, I was thinking about this field thing. Maybe the field is something that was a, a fair amount of land and he was leasing it to some of these other people. And he's like, here, have some brisket. <laughs> I'm selling the field, <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So I, it just kind of, it does have that feeling of finality, but also this feeling of celebratory. It's like mm-hmm. Elisha was, Elisha knew that he was being called by God to a high office. Um, it's just kind of cool. You know, it's yeah. like Elisha is an interesting guy. And we'll see yeah, he as, is. as we see more of him later. He's a very complex guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he is. One of the other things in this passage before we close out chapter yes. 19 yep. um, is we, when we read this, we think, okay, he's out there plowing. But you got to remember, this is at the end of three years of severe drought. There's nothing growing. And so there's no food. They're out there plowing in the hopes that God is going to bring them food. But it's not like the harvest has come yet. This is just finished. Elijah went to Sinai, came back. So I don't know, maybe three months and so there's no food. So when Elisha says, you know what, I'm going to kill my oxen to feed the people, it's not like, oh, we'll have some nice oxen in addition to our abundant harvest. Yeah. It's it, it's still severe time of famine when Elisha does this. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a cool picture of ministry is, you know, he's stepping in by faith, sacrificing his livestock, which was his industry. It was his hope of livelihood. And feeding people with it, you know, mm. it's it's a cool picture of what it looks like to go into vocational ministry. You're yeah. taking on the mantle of the Lord, and everything that you had worked for prior to that point is now up for whatever He wants to do with it. It's it's one of those uh, what do they call that the burn the ships moment, you know, yeah. where you land and yeah. you burn the ships so you can't go back, that kind of thing. Uh, although that was typically something the leaders did to the rank and file. It's like, I don't want you looking back at those boats, so I'm going to take care of that right now. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's now, now that we've got you all excited about Elisha, we're not going to talk about him again for a while. Um, because we have chapter 20, which takes us to the story of Ahab's mm-hmm. wars with Syria. Um, so this is, this is a shifting point in a story. So chapter 17, 18, 19, we learn all about Elijah. Uh-huh. And then, unfortunately, like this, I don't, I don't know how excited people are going to be, but chapter 20, 21, and 22 are all Ahab. And so we've gone from, from looking at this amazing prophet, this mighty warrior for the Lord, um, to now we get three chapters of spineless, <laughs> gross Ahab. <laughs> Um, here we have Ahab and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, it says he gathered all his army now, together. 
Is but there something we, to know about Ben Hadad? Okay, there is. Okay, so so Ahab, if you if you remember going back to the initial in chapter seventeen, when Elijah comes out of nowhere, he goes and he confronts Ahab and he says, "I'm turning off the water," and that was a direct attack against their belief in the god Baal, who is the god of storm and thunder and all that. Um, and so when Elijah says there's not going to be rain for three years, it's like, well, you're not in charge of the rain. Baal's in charge of the rain. Well, no, Yahweh is in charge of the rain. And so those three chapters kind of put together the story where Baal is being shown as powerless. And so now you move to a different region. It's the king of Syria, but his name is Ben-Hadad. Now, the Hebrew word Ben means son of, but Hadad was the Syrian name that was given to Baal. And so this literally is, I mean, it would be like you're reading, this was the title of their kings. They so exalted themselves in Baal that their titles for their kings were literally Ben-Hadad or the son of Baal, oh, the king of Syria. Interesting. And so, yeah, and so God hasn't taken his eyes off of humiliating Baal. Now he's taking the king of Syria who cloaks himself in the name the son of Baal. And he's going to to deal with him. So kind of like uh, Pharaoh, his name wasn't Pharaoh. You know, his Correct. name was something else. Um, this guy's name probably wasn't Ben Hadad. His family name was something mm-hmm. else. But he's just being called son of Baal. Correct. Interesting. And you find like regional names like that happen a lot in this region. So like Isn't that Abimelech, true? With like, yeah, Abimelech. Means, I was going to say that's yeah. true with Abimelech too, right? Abimelech, which in Hebrew just means son of the king. Yeah. Um, that's what the name means. But ever you find all these Abimelechs and you're like, man, that was a really common name. No, that's a that's a title. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it says that the, that the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, gathered all of his armies together. And it says that 32 kings were with him. Does that mean he's got an alliance of 32 nations? Not necessarily nations. In the ancient world – uh, a lot of cities had their own kings, and oh, okay. a lot of times they were vassal kings. Okay. So you saw this. Egypt used to do this all the time um, where they would have cities that were under their control. Rome would do it, you know, where you conquered cities. Yeah, King the Herod, cities paid right? taxes and you – yeah. King, King Herod. Herod, exactly. Yeah. So King Herod has no authority outside of Rome, and so – but – with Rome's authority, he can call himself king. And so you had this all over regions that would be under the control of a bigger power, but in the cities, they would have their own kings. And so it's not like 32 massive nations coming together. It's really an alliance probably of 32 cities um, that are aligned with the king of Syria. Okay. So he had a pretty good-sized army. 32 mm-hmm. kings were with him and horses and chariots. And we've mentioned many times as we've been talking about Old Testament stuff that chariots were essentially the armored division of Old Testament mm-hmm. warfare. If you had a lot of chariots, you had the kind – you had tanks. You had things <laughs> that could run yeah. through people. Yep. Um, so it says, and he went up and closed in on Samaria, just for reference sake, if you're following along, Samaria is the northern kingdom of Israel. It's called Samaria. Yeah. And fought against the it. capital city, right? But the but then it's, they called so Samaria the territory was, and the city, the territory and the city, right? Um, and he sent messengers into the city to King Ahab to excuse me to Ahab king of Israel and said to him, "Thus says Ben Hadad, which now means thus says the son of Baal. That's very interesting. Thus says <laughs> the son of Baal." <laughs> Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. Don't want the worst wives. I want your best wives. Um, and the king of Israel answered, and here's, here's Ahab. Here's our, here's the champion of Israel. As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. (laughs) Golly. Oh man. You know what? There are white flags of surrender and then there's whatever that is. 
Um, <laughs> what else would you like? Yeah, that's basically. Is there anything else I can get you while you're plundering my kingdom, my lord? <laughs> oh man. So yeah. then the messengers came again and says, "Thus says Ben Hadad again, son of Baal. I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children." <laughs> Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So understand here, it doesn't say whatever pleases them. It says whatever pleases you. Ben-Hadad is sending these guys in to plunder Ahab's palace and his house and his servants' houses, and anything that Ahab likes, they're taking. It's punitive. I mean, it's it's like, I just want to inflict humiliation on you. It is. Dude, that's like, you know, <laughs> this is your favorite <laughs> This is your favorite pillow, King Ahab? We'll be taking that. You like these slippers? They're ours. <laughs> Literally. It's pretty wild. I mean, so think about what the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, already knows about, ah- about Ahab. It's like... He's a wimp. He's a pushover. I'm just going to treat him however I want to treat him. Um, you just see it all over the story. Yeah. So then Ahab, like he always does, asks other people for their opinion. <laughs> <laughs> then the king of verse 7, then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders... Here's a collective forehead slap. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Big, big, deep intake of breath. (gasps) And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, like, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm just, just, oh, don't get mad. Um, All that you first demanded of your servant, I will do, but this thing... Yeah, still he's still going to give him the, the silver and the gold and the wives and the children. Yeah, all but that he, I'll do. He's not going to let him ransack the place and take his slippers and his bunny pillow. <laughs> he says, but this thing I cannot do. That's one step too far. That's just... Uh, Which, by the way, is not what the elders told him no, to do. No, it's not. So it's like, they're like, stand, stand against him. Don't listen to him. Don't consent. And he goes trying to negotiate. Yeah. All right, well, I'll give you the first part. You know, yeah, but but don't take what pleases me. And, and it's like, what is wrong with this guy? Well, and once again, Ahab has shown his propensity for telling a part of the message. It's like they, the elders and the people, gave him a message: do not listen or consent. And Ahab related part of that back to Ben Hadad. This last part I can't do, but all the rest of it is okay. It's, you know, that has been the mark of Ahab, Sam, all along, which is Ahab, mm-hmm. he he keeps, he holds back information, he tells part of the truth, he says what will favor him. This guy is incapable of giving you the whole truth. Incapable, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. <sighs> and I think there's, you know, for, for those of us that are people pleasers, you know, uh, there's a little like I can kind of relate to Ahab. Like you don't want to deliver hard news, you don't want confrontation, you don't want conflict. Sure. And so God gives you this truth, you know, that you're supposed to stand for. It doesn't mean you have to be harsh with it, but you've got truth that you're supposed to stand for. And there's times where it's really hard and uncomfortable <laughs> in the middle of a com- com- conversation where someone says, you know, what do you think? And you've got to be, like, oh, 
I got to drop this truth bomb, yeah. you know, and this is – I this wish you hadn't asked me wrongly. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, where you want to hedge your bets and say, well, I don't want to upset you, so here's here's kind of here's kind of part of the truth, yeah. you know, or the part that I don't think is going to inflame you. And like there's part of me – you know, of course, I'm – I can't imagine me giving up Laura and the children, but – yeah. There's part of me where I can say, man, I do battle with that. That I think everyone does battle with that cowardice or where you feel that compulsion like, hey, now's this open door to talk with somebody about Jesus. They've opened the barn door wide open, walk through it, and you're going, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. I think I'm just going to settle with maybe you know, some kind of throwaway comment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there is some part of like I think we all have that cowardice in us, but Ahab takes it to like the next level. Yeah. Um, but the Lord is not a huge fan of that kind of cowardice. No. And it makes it so when I look at Ahab and I say Ahab, I'm just trying to think like, all right, I'm pointing at Ahab, but is the Lord looking at me going, all right, let's talk about your stuff. <laughs> yeah. Know? I do have some of that in me. Not not to the level of giving up Laura and the kids. <laughs> but but there is some bit of cowardice in me where I want to be comfortable and avoid conflict. I mean, the the silver and the gold you'd be okay with because you're you're you work for a church, so the silver and gold in your case is like you want the thirty two <laughs> yeah. cents that's in my pocket, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but there are times where the Lord raises you up as a leader, and you He does not give you permission to back down. You know? Yeah. Um. Like you've got to be bold with the gospel, gracious, humble, um, merciful, but you don't have permission to walk away from God's truth because it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do as a pastor or a prophet, I imagine. You know, I'm sure there's lots of stuff where Elijah was like, you want me to do what? (laughs) Yeah. Well, like you want me to go stand in front of Jezebel and say this, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know that was taxing on Elijah because when Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, he doesn't say, I don't care what you think. You know, yeah. he, it crushes him. Yeah. He's done. Go ahead. Do your worst, woman. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, that's not, that's not him. Somehow, it's courage. Somehow, whenever I imagine Old Testament characters, they always have this sort of Shakespearean English in their pronunciation. I, uh, uh, because, you know, after all, if the King James Version of the Bible was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for – Oh, anyway. yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> little a little Bible humor there, folks. Um, all right, so let's find out what happens next here. After after uh, Ahab right here decides to give the, his little weaseling response, it says, "And the messengers departed and brought him word again." Ben Hadad sent to him and said, "The gods do so to me, and more also. If the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me." That's there's, a weird that's weird phrasing again, Sam. What's he saying there? Well, there's two things that that you notice right away. This is very similar to what Jezebel said to Elijah, if you remember. Like when she right. says, mm-hmm. the gods do to me and more also if by this time tomorrow you're not dead. So you hear in Bin Hadad the same kind of voice that was coming out of Jezebel toward Elijah, which, you know, interesting. But then he says, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls of all the people who follow me, which tells you the condition of Samaria. It's not prosperous. It's filled with dust. And probably I imagine that part of the reason why Ben-Hadad – because this was a regional famine and a regional drought, you know. And part of the reason why Ben-Hadad is so angry and he's coming after Ahab is it seems like there's some bit of blame 
coming toward Samaria and Ahab for the drought that has impacted Ben-Hadad's country. And so he's like, you know, you've brought this on us. And he mentions the conditions, the dust of Samaria, this famine that's left everything in ruin. There's no plants or produce or crops. Um, so we're coming here to plunder you, but we're going to be walking if, – if the dust shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Like you don't have enough to offer me to satisfy what I want from you. Mm. All you have is dust. Your land is devastated except for your wealth. Hmm. And your house, so I'm taking that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, when I was looking at that, I was, I was trying to figure out what he was getting at, and it, and to me, it almost seemed as though there's not even enough dirt for my soldiers to dig up. It's like you don't even have the dirt. <laughs> it's like not only are you dirt poor, but you don't have any dirt. Um, it just, it seemed like a, it struck me as being some kind of an insult. You know, it's like Ben Haddad is telling him, look, it's a worthless piece of land. So one of the things that we find out two chapters later when it's describing Ahab on his way out, it gives us some details about him. And we're told that his palace was built with ivory. Now, you don't have a poor kingdom that builds palaces with ivory. No. And and one of the things that's really fascinating is that an archaeologist have just uncovered this his old palace that's in Samaria and some of his buildings that were in Jezreel. And what do you know? I mean, you can Google this. They found these different friezes and they're all in ivory, carved ivory of lions and, and bulls and stuff like that that are unbelievably ornate and beautiful that have been preserved even in the ruins of the city for so long. And it's like, I'll be. Ahab had a palace that was entirely decorated with all this unbelievable ivory. Um, so Ahab's kingdom, I mean, apart from this year, the years of famine, which are also, by the way, in the archaeological record, we know that there was a famine during this time. Even the study of the pollen and the different strata that archaeologists have looked at show that there was a severe famine right at the reign of Ahab. But outside of that, he was a very wealthy king, um, and we know that from elsewhere. So when he comes and says, you know, the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls all the people who follow me, there is some bit of that that in the aftermath of that famine – it's it's pretty devastated, but all the wealth that Ahab has personally is substantial, which shows you what a wicked king he is because he's amassed it and all of his people are suffering. Um, do you think that there's uh, some sense in which that was money that, that he had like passed down from Solomon? Sure. Was that, was that wealth that was still in, mm-hmm. the, in the king's hands? Sure. Um, in part, yeah. Which would, which would certainly speak to Ecclesiastes where Solomon said, you're going to work hard for everything and then some guy you don't even know – parentheses, or probably like, <laughs> is going to inherit all your stuff. So yeah. uh, Ahab was probably still spending some of Solomon's cash. Um, so then Ahab answers him. It says, verse 11, And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Again, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> What's the insult there? Ahab... And this is like his only time where you see him actually looking courageous. He's talking trash. Yeah. So it says, let him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. What he's saying is, why don't you talk trash after the battle? In other words, like when you beat me, then you talk trash. But until then, you need to be quiet. Oh, so in other words, this is saying you got the talking part done. Yep, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. You're, you're talking trash, but you haven't won yet. Bring it. So, so Ahab says, you got the talking part done. And then it says, uh, when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, um, which doesn't mean that they were down at 
Bennigans in the booths. Uh, that's like tents or, you know, their, their temporary yeah. housing they brought with them. Bennigans? That's an old, that's an old anyway. name. They're, they're not even around anymore, are they? That's like, that was the last time I sat in a booth and drank. <laughs> it might be. I just haven't thought about a Bennigans in a long time. In a long time, yeah. Well, there we are. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am old. Um, and I apparently don't go out very much where there's booths. Um, so at any rate, uh, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So Ben-Hadad responded, as expected, by, you know, saddle up, let's get it done. Um, and it says, and behold, uh, this is verse 13, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? <laughs> okay, you think about that. It's like God saying, do you see all those guys out there that are getting ready to come kick your butt, Ahab? <laughs> have you noticed? In case you missed it, that all those guys lined up out there are coming for you. And then he says, behold, I will give it into your hand this day. And you shall know that I am the Lord. What amazing mercy and faithfulness yeah. on God's part to the king of Israel, to the king of his people. This, folks, this is the wickedest king there. This is a guy that God can't stand. And yet he's the king of Israel. And so mm -hmm. God comes in faithfully and says, see all those guys out there? I'm going to give them into your hands so that you can know I am the Lord. Yeah. I'm going to give you one more chance, Ahab. Like time after time, time after, after time. time after, yeah. I mean, just again and again. And he's, I want you to know who I am. Yeah. And of course, Ahab's response is yes. amazing. And Ahab said, by whom? <laughs> who's going to, who's going to do this, Lord? How's this going to happen? You know, it's like a contrast that between Isaiah. So, you know, God comes to Isaiah and says, I've got this great mission. Whom shall I send? And Isaiah's jumping up and down. Send me, send me, send me. Yeah. Then he does this with Ahab and Ahab's like, by whom? Yeah. yeah. Surely just, not me. I picture Ahab looking around. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. He's like over his shoulders. Who's going to go? Um, he said, and I assume this is the prophet speaking now again. He said, thus says the Lord, since Ahab would definitely not speak for the Lord, um, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And then he, Ahab, said, um, who shall begin the battle? And then he, the prophet, answered, you. <laughs> oh my goodness then he ahab mustered the servants of the governors of the districts and they were 232 um, and after them he mustered all the people of israel seven thousand. which is interesting it's interesting because that's the number of people that it, that's the same number god said had not bowed the knee to baal yeah. i don't know that that's the same but it's interesting that it, i mean i can't imagine that they're all the exact same people but it's interesting that it's that same number it's like yeah. This faithful remnant. Yeah. You know, it's the same number in both cases. And it also is interesting because what you're dealing with here is a much smaller army on the part of Israel. Mm -hmm. There's no there's no question that Ben-Hadad had more than 7,000 people out there. Oh, and I think it tells us later how many get slain. It's like an insanely huge number. Right. It says, verse 16, and they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was, I like this, drinking himself drunk in the booths. He and the 32 <laughs> kings who helped him. So Ben-Hadad is taking Ahab so not seriously, which you can understand why, because Ahab is like spineless milk toast, and Ben-Hadad is thinking, we're going to walk up to the wall, we're going to yell, boo, and Ahab's going to run and we can loot the city. So he's he's mm -hmm. he's tying one on Sam. He's, in he's the already booth. celebrating. Yeah, he's, he's, he's drinking. He, he had the talking part done, and now he's getting the drinking part done. 
Verse 17, <laughs> the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. Which is kind of <laughs> like, why did he just say, take them alive? Um, what uh, so, uh, I guess I guess if they had come out to garden, kill them? I don't know. Um, <laughs> what he's saying is death will be too easy for them. I want them as slaves. Oh, okay. So this is a this is a capture them because I want them for slaves. Yep. I'm plundering them and I'm taking them as slaves regardless. If okay. they come out for peace, they're going to be slaves. If they come out for war, they're going to be slaves. Okay. So whichever way. All right. That's my read. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Um, so verse 19, it says, uh, so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. Run away, run away. Um, and the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, come, strengthen yourself. And consider well what you have to do, for in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. So basically, the prophet is saying, round one uh, mm-hmm. is over. Uh, you're, you need to get in your corner and get ready for round two. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their place and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So the strategy of Syria, Sam, is what? They're they're blaming it on the territory, like the hill country around Samaria? Yeah. So if you go, I've actually had the privilege of being able to take this tour and go through the regions of of the northern tribes okay. and, and through Samaria. And one of the things that you find about the city of Samaria is it's very – there's hills, there's mountains, and then you have these narrow passes. And so when Ben-Hadad sends his army – and I mean they're coming in with all these tanks. Well, tanks don't do very well in mountainous territory. They can't yeah. go places. And not, and not to mention, in addition to being mountainous, they're like terraced mountains. So it's not like you just go up a hill because there's stone terraces that forms a lot of these mountains and hills. And so they would be totally trapped in these with these chariots just down in the ravines. And so they were super easy to pick off. You know, you could have 7,000 7, people, infantry, that are up on the hills that would be able to really – get these chariots and make them totally ineffective. And in the first battle, that's exactly what happened. They used the mountains to their advantage against this army of chariots and horses and put them down. And so then you get the people who come to Ben-Hadad and says, oh, we've got it figured out. Like their god is a god of the hills, not of the valleys. And so next time we fight, we need to figure out a way to get them down into the valley. And God's like, I'll take that challenge. <laughs> you know, you know, you want to fight in the valley? I'll beat you there. And still, Israel is going to be outnumbered. They're still a massive underdog. But this time, the first time, Israel doesn't come with chariots, right? Um, he doesn't come with with horses and all that stuff. It just says 7,000 men. Yeah. Next time, it's going to be down in the valley where chariot warfare is way more effective. And Israel is 
really not expected to win. You know, my take on the story of this first battle, and maybe, again, maybe this is just me reading in and being fanciful, and I've read too many, you know, high fantasy novels or whatever, but it strikes me as though Ben-Hadad and the army of Syria, they they didn't really take this whole thing seriously. Like, Ben-Hadad came out with these political leaders. He didn't bring commanders. That's what they're saying this time. Get rid of the kings and bring commanders this time. Bring military people. It's like pomp and ceremony and circumstance and and just all of it's it's like oh this shall be a walk in the park let's go raid samaria and they all went out because they expected that ahab was going to roll over which he tried to do and they expected that there was going to be no fight that it basically was going to be a big loot party they showed up they talked smack they traded insults they were getting drunk in the middle of the day mm-hmm. and then they got their butts kicked and it just seems to me and maybe again i don't you know i'm not I'm not an archaeological or old Bible expert, but doesn't it seem as though these guys were kind of expecting a walk in the park? And mm-hmm. and it was it, it was a bunch of like not regular. It's like they really got showed up in this case. And then they said to a to Ben Haddad, you have to take this seriously next time. <laughs> yeah. Like I, you go to science fiction. My brain right now is going to Rocky three yeah. where Rocky gets just pummeled by yes. Mr. T because he didn't take him seriously. Now Ben Haddad is like, okay, I'm going and training. We're coming in with everything we've got. We're going to destroy you this time. We're taking it super seriously. We're going back to the nasty old gym. We're not working yeah. out in Vegas anymore, man. <laughs> this is going to be tough. Yeah, you know? so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, verse 26 continues the story. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek uh, to fight against Israel. And Aphek is a, is a plain that's near um, Samaria. So Ben-Hadad is like, come on out here and fight me on the level land, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, and the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, <laughs> but the Syrians filled the country. That's quite a picture. Mm-hmm. Um, verse 28, and a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. <laughs> Yahweh's uh-huh. going, oh, yeah. <laughs> Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Once more, Ahab is getting a chance to, to acknowledge that that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God, it's yet another opportunity for him to turn to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. Mm-hmm. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put on sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. Maybe. One of the reasons why when it's talking about this, when they put sackcloth around their waist and ropes on their heads, the better way to understand this is when you would win slaves in a battle, you would strip them of any armor that they had so where they're in just basic clothing and they don't stand a threat. And then you would wrap ropes around their neck and tie them to the chariots as they go out so that they couldn't escape. And so 
when when Ben Haddad says, "Okay, we're we're conquered," <laughs> you know, we just got really whipped. Um, the wall, which is interesting, when it talks about the wall falling um, and all of these people dying, it's rem- it reminds you of Jericho. You know, they come to a city seeking safety, and the walls fall in, and then those people are. Uh, devastated, you know, the Lord, they're wiped out, right? So it's like 27,000 men, you get the idea, flee into the city to try to find refuge, but the walls fall. And God is showing the kind of faithfulness to Ahab that he showed to Joshua and leading mm-hmm. him into the promised land, bringing down these walls. And so now the king, Ben-Hadad, the son of Baal, is saying, uh, let's before they even have a chance to get near us, let's take on the posture, the clothing, the appearance of conquered people and hopefully like we'll place the hint into their brain. Take us as slaves. We've already got the rope around our neck. Look, see? Um, and so that's the idea. It's it's full surrender. Okay. It is an absolute posture of surrender. This is not a we're going to show up in our military uniforms and expect to sign an armistice. This is a do whatever you want. Yeah. Just don't kill us. Right. Um Okay, well, let's see how that turns out then. Verse 32, so they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, please let me live. And he, this would be Ahab, said, oh, does he still live? He is my brother. (laughs) Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your brother, (laughs) Ben-Hadad. Then he, Ahab, said, "Go, go and bring him. Notice I'm doing Ahab's voice a little wimpy. Um, then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. Ahab invited him up into his chariot. No, 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 no. Come on. Come on up here. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you just laugh at that. Oh my goodness, Ahab. <sighs> it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And you know, one of the things that's happening here, and it's going to happen in the next three chapters, and, and we'll talk more about it as we progress through chapter 21 and 22, is Ahab is repeating all the major sins of King Saul. Um, so in this instance, you have this army that's seeking to destroy you that God has given into your hand and has told you, go to war with them. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you from this wicked nation that seeks your destruction. And just like Saul, who does not carry out holy war, but decides, you know what, I'm going to show mercy on my terms. Now here you have Ahab making that same mistake. I'm going to I'm going to deny, I'm going to reject what God told me and I'm going to offer mercy on my terms and utter foolishness and give this serpent another day to come and destroy all of my people. Um and so it's it's one of the great sins of Saul. Well, what happens with Saul? God removes him. God removes his his him from the throne of Israel and removes his anointing from him. Mm. And that is what's going on here with Ahab. God has come to Ahab and says, all right, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to be behind this victory. I'm going to do everything for you. Um, Conquer them. Like deliver your people from this threat. And Ahab is such a spineless coward. And by the way, he is so enamored with these foreigners and their pagan worship that he wants to jump in bed with him. You yeah. know, it's it's oh, he's my brother. Hooray, the son of Baal. I want him. You know, I want to be his partner. And he does so at the expense of the kingdom 
of God right. and all of his people. This is the same guy who was saying, I'm going to take your wife and your kids. Sure. And Ahab's like, oh, he's my brother. Yeah. He's like, no, he's not. Yeah. He's shown no authentic sign of repentance whatsoever. The Bible calls us to be as harmless as doves, but as shrewd as serpents, and Ahab is proving to be an utter naive moron. That's not what the Bible calls us to. Yeah. Ahab is 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 going for that verse that uh, was in Second Maccabees. It's not in the regular canon. That's called <laughs> as spineless as slugs. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. What do you think? What do you think about that? Like for those that look at Ahab and go, "Wait, he showed mercy." That's what a that's what a good man of godly man is supposed to do. How would you answer them in this case? I would say that um, Ahab had been told by the prophet, by the word of the Lord, that. Um, the word that the Lord was giving this army, these people into his hands, that he was supposed to defeat them and destroy them because that was God proving that he was God. Okay. And that the Lord has done all his part. And then by, by Ahab saying, Oh, 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 that's okay. You can, you will be friends. Now you can go home. Ahab was essentially diffusing the point of that great victory, which is the, it was a victory of the Lord over Baal. It wasn't a victory of Ahab over Ben-Hadad. It was a victory of Yahweh over Baal. And Ahab, by doing what he did, by letting Baal go, was saying, yeah, no, no, Yahweh really couldn't defeat you. Yeah, no, 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 this Yahweh's just, basically, it was Ahab turning his back on Yahweh on the God of Israel. Um, so mm-hmm. that's my problem with it. I don't know how you feel about it, but my problem is yep. that this battle was Yahweh versus Baal and, and the representative of Yahweh just went, okay, uh, we'll call it a draw. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what God is. And what I was talking about with Saul is in first Samuel 15, if you're interested in reading it, God comes and says, like, we're going to get rid of this enemy. They are, they're a blight on the world. They oppress people. They do all these terrible things. I want them destroyed. And then Samuel comes along and it says in verse 9, chapter 15, verse 9 of 1 Samuel, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs. And so God says, I have this mission, do this. And Saul says, oh, but I know better than you. Um, and that's going to be one of the undoings of Saul is yeah. how he treats these foreigners, and the same is true of Ahab. So let's see then how uh, God handles it <laughs> in the wake of Ahab's decision to let Ben-Hadad go with a warning. Um, verse 35, And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. Interesting way to open up. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And I'm thinking that second guy saw what happened to the first guy. (laughs) It says, because it says, and the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. It's like he hauled off and gave him a good shot. When he responds to the first man, he says, because you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord. So when he goes and says, strike me, please, this prophet does communicate that this is from the Lord. The Lord is commanding you, strike me, please. And the guy says, I'm not going to do what the Lord has commanded me through this prophet. That's important yeah. for what's going on here. Yeah. Because what is what has Ahab done? The prophets come to him and said, this is going to be what happens. You go strike this guy, and what does Ahab do? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. Right. 
Yeah. Yahweh certainly can't defeat Baal, you know. Right. Um, okay. So, uh, verse 38, it says, so the prophet departed with his wound and waited for the king, by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. As the king passed, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of battle and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. (laughs) And then verse 43, Ahab, And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. (laughs) Which are going to be words that get repeated in this yes. story. He's he's often very vexed and sullen. <laughs> he basically went in and pitched a fit. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. It's really kind of a roundabout way for this to happen. God could have sent the prophet to Ahab with the word of the Lord and just given him that pronouncement. Mm-hmm. But the Lord chose to do it in a more dramatic way. He chose yeah. to do it through this thing of showing what will happen when somebody disobeys the word of the Lord. A lion struck him down and, and devoured him. Um, what do you see in that? Is there something about that that stands out? I mean, the, the first part, when, it, when it's the lion, clearly that's, that's following the story that just happened. So you have Ahab who's commanded, go strike Ben-Hadad. And he says, nah. And so God, I mean, what he does with that man who refused the word of the prophet as he devours him and it's foreshadowing, all right, well, this is, this is the same thing that Ahab has done. So he's going to be devoured is the idea. But then the beautiful part of this that, you know, as wicked and as awful and as cowardly and as just repulsive as Ahab is, let's listen to the story, right? Ahab has this unbelievably wicked king, Ben-Hadad, and all the Syrians who are left under his command. And what does Ahab do? He looks at him and says, oh, brother, you know, I want peace with you. And so I'm going to let you go and under these terms that set his own people up for future destruction, right? It's just stupid. He's not leading as a king. He has no wisdom. And so what ends up happening is because this wicked king, Ben-Hadad, is released along with all of these people who were fighting against Ahab, Ahab now, because he did not take Ben-Hadad's life, God says, now I'm going to take your life. Now, spin that story a little bit upside down and you have a picture of the gospel, except it's entirely beautiful. You know, Ahab is wicked and corrupt and he has no courage, but Jesus comes and he is perfectly righteous. He's, he obeys all the commands of God. He does everything entirely correct. And all of the people come against him to war against him, to, to take God's kingdom, to spit in his face, to, to destroy what God wants. And what does Jesus do? He says, my brothers, you know, in mm-hmm. some sense, which is wild. He sees us, even though we're enemies, in his courage and knowing that he can redeem unlike Ahab, he says, brother, and he lets his enemies live. And God comes to him and gives that same pronouncement, which is pretty wild. I'm letting them go, but the cost for that 
is going to be, I'm taking your life, Jesus. And you know what Jesus says? I'm in. Yeah. That's what I want. But he doesn't just leave us evil to go back home to Syria. It is by the power of him laying his life down that he transforms the Ben Haddads, the Sam Caston Smiths, the Mark Lottenschlagers, and lets us go with life. Yeah. And he sends his spirit to transform us, and his kingdom conquers his enemies, not by defeating and getting rid of enemies, but by transforming his enemies to friends. Mm. That's the power of the gospel, wow. and it's it's amazing. But yeah, the story is an inverted upside down picture of the gospel, um, except where it's a curse upon Ahab because of his wickedness. Jesus, in his perfect obedience to the will of the Father, gives up his life so that we, we, the wicked enemies mm-hmm. and the armies against the kingdom of God, can be transformed and he to take, friends. And he took the curse on himself so right. that to remove the curse of sin from us. Yeah, That's right. Mm. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for uh, 1 Kings 19 and 20 and the story of Ahab to this point. Uh, there's a lot more ahead with Ahab behaving badly. I mean, that should almost be the subtitle of all of our messages here for a little while, Ahab Behaves Badly. Um, but we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today and that there have been things that you can take away from this. Uh, if you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of Out of Water at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater, as well as finding us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify, or in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. We'll be back next week with 1 Kings 21 and the story of Naboth and his vineyard. And we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.